Father, you are indeed great and worthy to be praised. And this morning, as we come to your word, we ask that you would teach us what you would want us to learn and give us hearts prepared, not only to receive, but ultimately to obey. May we not be merely hearers of the word, but doers. And I ask, Father, that as we hear your word, that if anything is said which is not guided by you, that you would remove it from our hearts, our minds, but whatever is of you, that you would embed it on our hearts, that we might not move on until we have obeyed your direction. And finally, I ask that as we leave this place in 45 minutes, that only the Lord Jesus get the glory, because if it goes anywhere else, it's pure robbery from the divine. So we commit this time to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you that know me, I just want you to know that I'm as passionate about the Word of God as ever, but due to COVID and due to our online friends, I will absolutely do my best to stay within the parameters set of this podium and pulpit. But I can still see every set of eyes, and I can still, from the back row, call you out if you are sleeping. So no one is safe, even if you're over 65. You might be eligible for the vaccine, but you're also eligible for staying awake. So with that warning said, let me just begin by a brief side note before we dive into the Word of God, as that's the exciting part. But I wanted to let you know. When you go through the, the second set of doors into the, the lobby of the other building, um, we have a table set up back there. And uh, no, we're not trying to sell things, but I just want to let you know what's available because this book actually officially comes out tomorrow morning on Amazon, but um, we have some copies back there. And it's called Prosper. Don't think about money. It's actually enjoying intimacy with God because in Psalm chapter 1, the one who prospers is the one who's enjoying intimacy with God. And so it's 31 chapters, uh, 31 angles of the blessed man. I actually wrote it during cancer and specifically radiation, but just enjoying uh, intimacy with him. So it's 31 angles of the blessed man from Psalm chapter 1, and every chapter ends with seven very open-ended questions with a page for journaling. And so all I encourage you is if you go through it, go through it with someone else. It's a great chance for discipleship, accountability, um, and community as you dive into Psalm chapter 1. Um, and also, this uh, is just a little booklet, but it's on studying a practical way to study the Word of God, something that we do with young men um, everywhere we go, and also on Bible marking. And then uh, you've got, uh, we've got these masks made in Senegal back there, um, some other random things. But I do ask you, even if you don't want a book or whatever, go by and grab a prayer card, because there's some prayer requests on the back. We just really ask your prayers for Priyanka and myself. Uh, we've got one more year, Lord willing, on this side of the world. Uh, North America being based here, although we're overseas some as well, but we do plan to move to Bangladesh next year full-time, praying for the Lord to raise up a team. So just thank you for your prayers. If you don't know much about Bangladesh, it's one of the world's most crowded nations, 165 million people. That's the low estimate, and it's smaller than the state of Iowa. So that kind of gives you an idea. If the United States was as crowded as Bangladesh, you ready? The United States would have a population of over 11 billion people. You say there's not that many people on planet Earth. You're correct. We have to have a lot rise from the dead to make that population here. 
So the point being is it's very crowded. Largest unreached people group in the world, the Bengali people. 130 million in, in Bangladesh, another 70 million in India. Um, so if you just be please praying for us. And one side note, I, I didn't mention this, but please, we mean it. At the table with those books, if for any reason, you know, I, I can't afford something, just take it. Don't even ask. Just take it. Take whatever you want. If you can use it for the glory of God, everything back there is um, to be used for that. All right, we're done. Genesis chapter 3. Now, this uh, passage has been on my heart for a while because I don't know how many of you have played sports, uh, specifically um, basketball or football, although there would be a couple other sports that fall in this category. But if you played basketball or American football, not so much the football of the rest of the world, you're given a playbook when you join the team. And this playbook usually will have a warning on the front. Now, the warning will be something to the nature of you are not permitted to make any copies. You're not permitted to disclose what's in it outside the team. And if you quit, if the season's over or in professional sports, if you get traded, you have to make sure you give back this book prior to dismissal. Now, the reason for it is inside this playbook is obviously the plays of the team, the tactics of the team, the way the team operates. And one key component is that when you're playing an opponent, uh, whatever, whoever, whoever you're against, it's to know the way they play the game because then you counter it. And that's why there's a lot of cheating when it comes to sports, is there not? Guys like Bill Belichick and the Patriots, multiple scandals. Your own home team of the Houston Astros, an epic example of cheating. And what do we have? I know you're like, oh man, you got to go there. I go there because we do it in our world. No apologies. I'm not here to promote or unpromote, whatever you want to say, sports teams. But hang on. There's a far greater opponent and enemy. And this morning, we're not cheating because the word of God is going to let us in. We're going to go inside the playbook. The playbook of the enemy. You might say, do we really want to focus there? Yes, we do. You know why? Because what his plays are all based on are counter-attacking what God is actually doing. So when we know what the enemy is aiming to do, we actually already know, oh, this is God's plan. This is what he wants. So it's really not about the enemy this morning. It's about the glory of God. And that's exactly what the enemy is countering or against and in genesis chapter 3 we're going to see 10 things now as we go there i just want to encourage you we're thousands of years removed from genesis chapter 3 and guess what the enemy has not changed his tactics you're going to find that they are in line with today in 2021 as they were in genesis 3 so beware. When I say beware, I'll tell you why I say beware. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we're told to not be outwitted by the designs of the enemy. Now, hang on. Outwitted by designs? Think about the word design. My brother back there, Vinay, he's an architect, and so he does a lot with designs and designing. And when you look at the designs that they do, everything is detailed 
to precision. I don't know to what precision. I don't know if you go to the millimeter or just the inch or the foot on things, but the point being is there is a specific design. Well, we learn in 2 Corinthians 2, the enemy has designs. He has these templates that he is using. And outwitted, you know what outwitted means in that verse? It just means to give him more than belongs to him. Let me tell you, glory does not belong to him. Our life does not belong to him. Our decisions do not belong to him. We've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in our body, which is the Lord's. And then we find out in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, that the enemy has snares. Now that word snare is a trap. It's, it's more like a trap used to trap birds, but it could be any kind of animal trap. Now, now I don't know uh, if you do any trapping. I personally don't, uh, because I don't know how, but I have friends that do, and they trap animals. But one thing I know about their trapping of creatures is they know creatures' patterns, they know where those animals run, and they put the trap in the pathway of those animals. Now, if the enemy has snares, where do you think he puts his snares? Well, he puts them in the paths that he knows we walk. That means that not only does he have a design, he has snares. And one more thing we learn in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, is the enemy has schemes. He's scheming. And a scheme is a deceptive strategy. So that means that not only is he laying snares out for you, not... Not only does he have a design, but he's trying to do it in a deceptive way. This morning, we're going to open his playbook. And we're going to see exactly what he wants to do. And my encouragement to each one of you, and it, it's, it's the way I'm receiving the message, okay? So I'm not preaching at you. I'm talking to myself, and you're invited to listen. I encourage you, ask the Lord where these strategies are being used on you. And also where you're falling for them. Because that's where repentance comes in. And also living in victory. Let me remind you, we're not fighting for victory this morning. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, you already have victory. We're more than conquerors. Thanks be to God who gives us a victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are fighting from victory, aren't we? So keep that in mind. Now, if you're not in Christ, you're not fighting from victory. But you don't have to fight for victory either. It's already been won for you, and we'll come back to that. So, Genesis chapter 3, let's read the passage uh, together. Together being you follow along, and I'll do it out loud. Beginning in verse 1, we'll go down through verse 13, Lord willing. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. The first play of the enemy is, comes out very strong right away. And that is, he wants us to doubt God's words. If you're taking notes, number one, the enemy wants us to doubt God's word. What does he say from the very beginning in verse one? Did God actually say? He wants us to doubt God's word. Now, when we think about doubting God's word, um, I, I want to just kind of bring in different ways that we, we tend to do this. An illustration I could use is if, oh, if and when I go to London, um, you typically end up in the downtown area where you see the Big Ben across the river. And if you've been to London, you've seen the Big Ben. Now, here is something which is very incorrect. If I went to London and I saw the time of the Big Ben and I looked at my, my non-existent watch and I said, oh, the Big Ben is actually 10 seconds slow. I am incorrect. You know why I'm incorrect? Because all time in England is coordinated with the Big Ben. In other words, the Big Ben is the official time. It's not that the Big, ten, Big Ben is 10 seconds slow. It's that my watch is 10 seconds fast. See, Big Ben is what all other time is based off of for Greenwich Mean Time. Well, with the Word of God, that's exactly true of our life. When our life does not line up with the Word of God, we can't say, oh, the Word of God here is just not coming at it culturally correct. Or the Word of God is not coming at it in, in, uh, in, in, in let's say, a way that we could actually do in today's world. Or what? The point is, the Word of God is truth. What does it say so clearly in Romans 3, verse 4? <laughs> Let God be true though everyone were a liar. See, we're not looking for popular vote here. This is not democracy. God is truth. And even if the entire world, and even if all the churches in the world say one thing, but the word of God says another, God is true and we're all wrong. But what does the enemy want to do? He wants to start to dilute he does it three different ways here. And we can see it play out on Eve. The first one is this. The first way he wants us to doubt it or mess with God's word is to take away from God's word. How does Eve do that? Well, go back to chapter 2. You don't have to turn the page probably. Chapter 2, verse 16. When God gives the command, it says in verse 16, God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, how does she take away? 
Well, God said, you may surely eat. In King James, you may freely eat. But notice when Eve says it, she takes away that word surely, that word freely. You might say, well, why is that so significant? Because God is extending a gracious invitation. You can freely eat of it all, except for this one tree. But now what she's saying, she took away that word freely. God said we may eat of the trees, but. Now you might say that's subtle, and it is subtle, but it's significant. Keep going. The enemy wants you to take away from God's word. Is there something you're taking away? Something God said where I just kind of want to leave that one off to the side. Second way is this. He wants you to add to God's word. How does she add? Well, she adds in verse 3 when she says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. Now, I think it's a great idea, Eve. I think you probably should keep your hands off of it. But God didn't say that. What happens in our churches? We start to add principles and so-called precepts which are not from the Lord. And ultimately, it becomes a legalism factor. Now, I'm not here to preach on legalism. But what I'm saying is we can quickly start to make small things the main thing and lose sight of the gospel, lose sight of the heart of God, and lose sight ultimately of pursuing him rather than pursuing the practices that we start to adopt as comfortable religion, if I can say it like that. So she takes away, she adds, and then what's one more thing? She changes God's word. Did you notice where she changed it in verse, uh, verses 2 and 3? But verse 3, she says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Wait, did God say that? No. God did not say, lest you die. God said, you will surely die. All of a sudden, she's making God's word a suggestion that perhaps if I do disobedience, I I might die. No, you will not might die. (laughs) You will surely die, Eve, and we will surely die too. How easy it is to start to make God's word suggestions rather than promises. So to doubt God's word is something that the enemy wants us to do. And I just wonder, is there anywhere where we're taking away something we just don't like? (laughs) It's okay if you don't know what to do with it. Just obey it. He didn't say you have to understand it all. He said lean not on your own understanding. In fact, that's a, a good indication that he's God and you're not. And that what he wants is trust. His ways, his thoughts are higher than yours. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Next thing is this. Doubt God's word. Second thing would be this. He wants you to doubt God's love. He wants you to doubt God's love. Verse 1 again. Notice the enemy says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's actually not at all what God said. Notice what the enemy is doing. The enemy is coming from a negative angle here. He's saying, wait, wait, so, so did God say you just can't eat of any of the trees? That's what God said, right? No, no. What's the end? The enemy is targeting the heart of God here, and he's saying God's keeping good stuff from you. God didn't say that. He said you can eat of every tree. (laughs) Surely eat. Freely eat. And then except for one. In fact, the one tree that was kept from them was so they could respond to God's love. Because love is a a, a relational thing. And if we're going to have a relationship, it's two-way. If it's only one way, that's not a relationship. So the very thing that God was keeping from them was actually an invitation to love, to respond to his love. Not something which was against them. Now, I just want to encourage you. 
I've seen one set of eyes there and one set of eyes over here that decided to close. Now, I don't know if you need a nap right now, but I'm encouraging you to wake up because I've got 34 minutes left. Now, most places, I give myself five minutes extra every time I see somebody take a nap. Today, I'm going to really honor the elders of this church that asked me to stop on time, so I'm going to. If you were at a youth camp, I absolutely would already have 10 extra minutes, and I would take every single one of them. So I'm asking you, and not in kindness to me, but in respect and honor of the Word of God, can you try to keep your eyes open? All right, you're like, you're straightforward. Absolutely. Because why should we sleep when we're learning the enemy's playbook? Would he not love for you to take a nap right now? I think he would. Don't play into his hand. Don't play into his hand. Let's get back to the word of God. He wants you to doubt God's love. Any tree in the garden? (laughs) And so let me ask you a question. What do you feel like God is keeping from you? Anything? Is he keeping from you an answer to prayer that you've been seeking? Wait, wait, is he really keeping it from you? Or could it be that's the process through which he's teaching you, demonstrating to you his patience? I don't know what it is. I don't know where maybe right now you're doubting God's love. Maybe it's a healing that you're seeking. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's economic situation. Maybe it's your political preferences and you say, God, where are you? Oh, the enemy wants you to start asking about the love of God. Anytime you doubt it, look at the center cross and you'll remember he loves you far more than you love yourself. The third thing the enemy wants to do, and I won't stay on this one long because it's quite easily understood, to doubt God's judgment. Oh, I believe this is one of the primary reasons evangelism is not a priority in our life. Because we doubt that God actually meant what he said. We doubt God's judgment. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He wants us to doubt God's judgment. But my friends, the reality is this. That we all will stand before God. And if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to repent of your sin and turn to the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you in love. You'll be lost for eternity, but it will not be because God did not love you. It will not be because He did not provide salvation for you. It'll be because you rejected His love. I mean, it's easy to understand. When I proposed to my wife, imagine she said no on that day in Detroit on the tarmac of the DTW airport. If she had said no, and I said, well, in that case, I'm going to force you. We call that abuse in our world, and we all understand that concept. Why do we have a different standard for God? God extends his love. He's done everything that we might be saved. If you end up in hell, it will not be be because God just said, go. It'll be because you rejected his love. You chose it. Because he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So with that being said, the the fourth thing is this. The enemy wants to disguise the destruction. You say that's similar. It's similar, but it's different. Look at verses 4 and 5. The serpent says, you will not surely die. That's doubting God's judgment. And then he moves on. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, 
he, he puts that, that bait on the hook. He gets that lure out. He says, okay, let's move on from the dying part. You'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. I remember fishing once. Uh, it was in Alaska, and I was catching fish, which is surprising for me. Again, you've already know I don't set traps. I'm really a bad fisherman, too. I enjoy it because it's nice, peaceful, relaxing time, but, um, but I don't normally catch a lot. That day I was catching a lot because the guy we were staying with, he just had like this um, you know, pond, whatever you want to say, with a lot of fish stocked in it. And so we were catching, and then all of a sudden I stopped catching. I was like, what's up? Like, I was catching them, like, every couple minutes, and now I'm just, like, getting nothing. I finally reel in my line, and I have a hook, but nothing on it. Something had taken my, it wasn't even a worm, it was, like, just a, a lure that was whatever. Um, I don't know why the, the fish decided to go away with that one. But anyway, that being said, I had nothing. So it was obvious why I wasn't catching. And, and you know, it's true, too, for us in this world. The enemy doesn't just put a hook out there like, oh, yeah, yeah, you do this, you're going to die. You do this, you're going to get diseases. You do this, you're going to have a terrible life. The enemy doesn't do that. He baits it with, with what we would say, beauty. Now, I, I used to hear, and I'm not saying any of you have ever said this, but I used to hear when I was a kid, like, oh, sin is so terrible, all this. But then you, then you start reading the Word of God, and you find that sin has pleasure for a season. See, there's a reason there's pleasure for a season. I'm not up here to tell young people there's no pleasure in sin because the Word of God says there's pleasure in sin for a season, but there's death in the end. The enemy is going to disguise it, so just know sin is going to look really good, but there's a hook underneath that pleasure and that hook of your soul without repentance will end up in hell. Beware. Oh, how the devil wants to snag lives with the temporary fleeting pleasures of this world. That's why we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, don't look at the things you see, look at the things you don't see. The things you see are temporary. The things you don't see are eternal. When I give my daughter medicine, there are some that she totally doesn't mind, but there are some she really dislikes. So what do I do? I, I, if somehow it's a white color, I'll mix it in milk. Or if it's some other color, it might go in oatmeal or her smoothie. But the fact is I need to disguise it. So she's taking that medicine without even knowing it's going into her body. I wonder, is the enemy doing that? Oh, he's doing it. Think about all the things we're absorbing, the hatred we're absorbing, the gossip we're absorbing, the ideologies of the world we're absorbing, the sensuality of the world we're absorbing. Ho oh, ho, he's got the medicine in the milk. What milk are you drinking? Is it of the word or is it of the world? Because chances are he's disguising the destruction in something that tastes really good. Take a moment to examine your life and I'll do the same. Beware. Beware. The next thing is this. We see that he wants to distort the severity of How does he do that? Well, again, it goes with doubting God's judgment, but distorting the severity, he says it in verse 4. He says again, you will not surely die. We doubt God's judgment, but what's the degree of God's judgment? The degree is death. I just think back to how he distorts the severity. Like, we like to throw words around, um, and, and we kind of take sin, and we like to redefine sin, don't we? So, for instance, here are some ways we redefine sin, because it sounds so much better, right? Pride. Pride is such a generic term. 
But instead of pride, man, in America, we got self-respect and dignity, don't we? Who cares about pride? How about this one? Covetousness. Oh, none of us are covetous. <laughs> but we do good stewardship. Good stewardship. Oh, may we lay up treasures on earth <laughs> where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves might break in and steal or where stock accounts will shut your account down because it's a stock that's trading too high and they can't afford to lose the money. Let's invest there instead. I'm just using this week's reports in case you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you are totally on it, you Robin Hood people. <laughs> What's the point? Are we redefining things? Are we allowing him to distort the severity? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Drunkenness is a sin, but fellowship is good. Fellowship. Let's just call it fellowship. Yeah, yeah, I'm, abused. I'm not even talking like alcohol. I'm talking, when I say drunkenness, I'm talking control of the flesh in any way. Let's keep going. Addiction? Ah, let's, talk, let's call it preferences. I prefer to watch football for 10 hours a week. I prefer to play my game system every evening instead of actually investing into lives and things that might matter. Oh, 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 idolatry, please. <laughs> That's rude. Let's just go with interests. Undisciplined life, it's an insult. It's called freedom of choice. Materialism, I prefer retail therapy. <sighs> Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And put darkness, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those are not my words. Those would be Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Number six. The sixth thing we see the enemy do is he wants us to deny God's authority. Well, how does that work? Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And get this. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, some of you probably think, all right, that's one that's just not working on me. I'm not trying to be God. Well, hang on. Denying God's authority is a lot more subtle than we might think. Let me ask the question in a very different framework, maybe a different paradigm of thought, and it would be this. Who is on the throne of your life? And what I mean by that is who's making the decisions, who's calling the shots, because we can kind of be like Martha. Now, I, I love Martha in Scripture. I think she gets a lot of bad rap, and I, I think she's actually a beautiful character, and I could say a lot on that, but that would be a massive rabbit trail where we'd have to shoot the rabbit, so we won't even go there. But I'll say this about Martha. When Martha invites Jesus into her home, and Mary is being blessed at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is working in preparation, it seems, in the kitchen, although the word there is actually ministry, so she's doing a good thing. What does she say? She says, Lord... Do you not care that Mary has left me to serve alone? And then what? Tell her to help me. Now watch out. She just called him Lord, and the very next thing she does is tell her. She calls him Lord and then commands him of what to do. How often do we do that in our prayers? We call him Lord, and then we command our Lord. Now you say, well, I don't exactly do that. Well, I know we don't think we're God, but are we calling the shots? Are we making the decisions? Or are we actually surrendering our choices to the one who knows better? Are we actually going back to the word of God and saying, well, you know, this, this, this makes more sense to me, but the word of God says this, so I'm just going to trust it. Now, in case you forgot, I'm preaching to myself. I don't know your lives. 
And I'm genuinely saying this. When I leave here, I will not be thinking about, I hope you got it. <laughs> you can ask my wife. When I leave here, I'll leave convicted because I know what James chapter 3 says. And the one teaching is subject to a greater judgment. I just want you to know that. I have to remind you. I don't care what you get from me. What I care is what you get from the Lord. Let's take it seriously. So are we denying God's authority? Are we really treating him like a good teacher instead of Lord? The seventh thing we see that the enemy wants to do is the enemy wants to dilute truth with lies. Oh, he'll give a lot of truth, but how does he do that? Verse verse 5 and then verse 7. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. What happened? The enemy said, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Verse 7, their eyes were open. Did the devil tell the truth? Yes, he did. Not fully, but he told the truth. What did he do? He, he diluted truth with lies. And I want you to understand this is his tactic. Very rarely is the enemy going to throw something at you that's just so obviously a falsehood. How often from the classrooms of the United States to the rest of the world, to the way that we should be living our life uh, in the American dream, to the way that uh, other, let's say, selfish ideologies have creeped into our life, to our politics. I mean, let's be honest, and, and don't worry. You might be nervous. I'm not nervous. So if anybody's nervous here, it's definitely out there. Because when I address these things, I'm just coming from the Word of God, so, like, so I'm not coming from any angle politically speaking here. But any political system in the United States we back up. Ultimately, if we are standing on the platform of a political party and not the word of God, we are going to have to dilute truth with lies. That's just the way it is. So it's fine. Vote the way you vote. Support. Absolutely, there are things you should be supporting. Absolutely, 100%. But to fully support that which is diluted truth with lies means we are no longer standing on the foundation of God's word, but on the foundation of man. Beware. You think the enemy's happy? Absolutely. He's happy if we're mostly happy with truth, with some lies, because now there's a foothold. You say, hang on, I'm a believer in Christ. Well, was the book of Ephesians written to believers or non-believers? Believers is the answer. So in chapter 4, is it any wonder that they're exhorted not to give a place to the devil in their life? We can do that. And one way we do that is when we allow platforms we stand on to be platforms with partial truth and partial lies. Just beware. This is a great tactic of the enemy that begins to divide his people and also makes our voice start to be diluted with things of the world. The eighth thing we see is this in verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eighth thing is this. The enemy wants to draw us through weakness, through our weakness. Now, let me explain. If I just read that verse, 
And I said, how did sin enter the world? Well, it, it, it would seem that we could say, well, it, it entered the world through Eve. And we would really not be very correct, biblically speaking. Now, I'm not going to go into the debate of it all, but I will read to you Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 17. And I'll also just tell you this morning, my daughter, as her one-year and nine-month-old self is prone to do, she disobeyed. So I pulled her aside, and I said, Haven, why did you disobey, Daddy? You know what she immediately told me? This is not great, but it's funny. She said, Eve. It's exactly what she told me. Eve. She'd been learning about Adam and Eve. Every time she does something wrong, she goes, Eve. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, I haven't quite gotten her to Romans chapter 5 yet, but Romans 5 says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now listen, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Did you not notice over and over and over? Talking about through the one man, Adam. Now, what's my point here? Well, my point is very simple, but it's actually quite profound. And that is that the enemy is looking for points of weakness in our life. Who was in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, humanly speaking? Adam. Not Eve. She was not yet taken from his side. Now, I think that's significant because that means Adam is the one that heard God directly say that. Maybe God repeated it later on for Eve too. I don't know, but that's not in the word of God. So what I know is this. How did sin enter through Adam? Eve gave him the fruit. Now, I'm not blaming Eve here. What I'm saying is the enemy has a tactic, and what he's looking for in our life are vulnerable places. He's looking for weak spots, and I believe Adam, in a very beautiful way, had a weak spot, and it was Eve. He loved her. We see that at the end of Genesis chapter 2. She was beautiful. She's his bride. But isn't it interesting the enemy came to Eve and not Adam? I just wonder where the enemy is seeking to attack those vulnerable places. Maybe it's the things we're so passionate about. And in those areas of passion, he infiltrates his lies. He infiltrates his perversion. He weakens the severity of what God has said. Drawn through weakness. There's an illustration, and I won't go into detail about it, but um, you probably have heard of Achilles, and you've heard it because of Achilles' heel. And if you know the story of it, it's a, it's a myth, but it's Greek mythology. And basically, there, he's born, to, I guess, like a demigod, and I don't know, I think it's a king. But anyway, the point being is that uh, his mother wants to protect Achilles, and so she takes him down to this river called Styx or Stikes, however you want to pronounce it. And the idea is if you dip your baby in this river, then he's invincible. 
And so she takes her baby and she dips him in the river. But if you notice, she holds him by the ankles and dips him in the river and pulls him out. So his whole body is invincible except for the part that didn't touch the water. And that's his ankles because her hands were on his ankles. And so the story goes on later. Paris of Troy, whatever they find out, and ends up shooting an arrow, gets his heel, Achilles' heel, and he dies. His point of weakness. He may have been invincible everywhere but his heel... But his enemy knew his point of weakness. Same for us. You know, you, you know, there is a solution here as believers. And that is to live lives in humility and brokenness and repentance. Acknowledging our weaknesses. Holding one another accountable in holiness. This is the privilege of the body of Christ. Let's not try to disguise our weaknesses and act like we're all strong We're weak people, but the beauty is we have not just a Savior, we have a Lord who's more than able. We're more than conquerors. We don't have to live with our weakness as the forefront, but in His strength, because it says in our weakness, what? His strength is made perfect. So we can actually flip this on the enemy. Number nine, number nine, and we're good on time, y'all. We have about seven minutes left. We're going to end on time. Number nine is this, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Number 9 is this, he wants to direct us to hide from God in our sin rather than run to God in our sin. The enemy wants you to hide. He wants you to be ashamed of what you've you've done. Now, it's true that the Lord Jesus died for our sin, but you know, he died for something else too. He died for our shame. How many of us live in shame? We live in places in our life where we're looking at our past rather than at our Savior. Christ died not just to forgive you. That would be good enough. He makes you new. He doesn't just forgive, he redeems. He buys back that brokenness. How many of us are living in the shame of the fig leaves? We're just trying to cover up our past. If you knew every detail about my life, man, you would realize I am an extremely, extremely broken individual with an absolutely beautiful Savior. That's my story, and I'm not being melodramatic at all. Please do not put any facade, never Put me on a platform, and that's ironic, platform in your life. Why? That's just a place to fall from. I am who I am because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my identity. And that's yours too. You know my daughter? I used to do something when she was like little. I still do it, but the story goes differently now. When she was, let's say, just starting to walk, I would chase her and I'd say, I'm coming to get you. And you know what she would do? She would turn, face me, and run into my arms. It really ruined the game. (laughs) But it was sweet. Now when I say that, with a laugh, she'll run the other way and I'll go get her. You see, I like the first example as a baby. Because that's what the Lord wants. When the Lord convicts us of sin, is he convicting us of sin because he's angry at us? No, he's convicting us of sin so that we can enjoy intimacy with him and run to his arms. But what does the enemy want? He wants you to believe that God's out to condemn you. He wants you to forget Romans 8.1. There is now therefore 
A little condemnation? No, no condemnation. None for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that I can run in sin to my heavenly Father in repentance, knowing that His arms are open for me to enjoy intimacy with Him. Restoration. (laughs) But the enemy is trying to keep some of you in your shame this morning. And until you come to Him confessing your sin, you won't enjoy that you have a heavenly Father who's already dealt with it and wants you now to enjoy the fullness of His love. God won't love you more, but you'll enjoy His love more. And I long for believers to enjoy His love. And the final thing is this. The enemy wants us to deflect the responsibility. What happens in verses 12 and 13? The man says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. First, the man blames the woman and God. The woman you you gave me. And then Eve, well, she goes on to blame the serpent. Deflecting responsibility. You know, when we stand before the Lord, there's no deflecting of responsibility. Our actions are not based on the actions of someone else. Ultimately, they're based on our refusal to surrender to the Word of God. It's interesting when Peter asks a question about forgiveness, right? In Matthew chapter 18, and he says, you know, how often should I forgive my brother? You know what Jesus doesn't say? Jesus doesn't say, well, what did he do to you? Because I need to think about your situation. He also doesn't say, oh, did it hurt really bad? Yeah, it hurt. Okay, so your situation, we're going to have another angle here. Or how many times did he do it? Nothing to do with any of that. What does Jesus say? Seven times 70. One more time. One more time. And then he gives an example. And the whole point is, because I've forgiven you. Just like we learn in Ephesians 4, end of the chapter, Ephesians 5, the end of the chapter, 4, sorry, 4, the end of the chapter, that we're to forgive others even as he's forgiven us. This is the beauty. We don't have to go around pointing fingers and deflecting responsibility and accusing and blaming others. You know, it's interesting. Uh, The devil's not unemployed, but he doesn't have to work hard because he's actually hired a lot of Christians to do his job. You know what he's called in the book of Revelation? The accuser of the brethren. He can go on vacation and get full benefits. Why? We're working hard for the devil. I know it sounds terrible to say. Is that not exactly what Jesus prays against in John 17? That we would be one even as he and his father are one? But what happens? We bite and devour one another as we're told. We accuse one another. We gossip about one another. And how will the world know? (laughs) By our love for one another. It's no wonder why they don't know based on us. My prayer this morning is that we would open the playbook of the enemy and we would copy the PDF and send it to everyone. (laughs) Don't obey what's on the cover of the enemy's playbook. Don't share it. Don't give it out. I'll take it with you and let you know He's going to keep using the same tactics over and over. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. May we go out into the world realizing the reason he's got this playbook is because of what God's up to. 
And God's working through his church, the bride. God's doing marvelous things. You know what? God's going to finish what he started. I've read the back of the book, and I believe it. I know we win. We've won. (laughs) So the question is, do you want to play with the winner, or do you want to invest in the loser? It all comes down to number one of these ten points. Do you believe the word of God? So, in a 30-second revision, the enemy wants you to doubt God's word, to doubt God's love, to doubt God's judgment, to disguise to destruction, to distort the severity, to deny God's authority, to dilute truth with lies, to draw us through weakness, to direct us to hide from God rather than to run to God in our sin and to deflect the responsibility. As I close out, I just want to ask, is there anybody here that's still in the grip of the enemy? I didn't say that you have given the enemy a place in your life. I mean, you're in the grip of the enemy. You've never repented of your sins. You've never turned to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you the word of God says there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, who died for you, who conquered the grave so you can live forever, and promises eternal life to whoever believes on his name, just puts their trust in him. Have you ever put your trust in Jesus Christ? If there's anyone here that's not saved, would you please today give your life to Jesus? I would encourage you, don't even wait for the, song, the, the, the music to finish, for the closing, the closing word. Like immediately, let's go out there and let's make sure you're right with God. Immediately, please don't leave here without a relationship with Jesus. And if you are in Christ, can we just take this closing time? Just you and God. This is not about you having to go to other people and some kind of like confess to 10 people and now you've been forgiven. Just confess to the Lord Jesus Christ where the enemy's been playing in your life and you've been going for it. And let's get back to that point where we're walking step by step with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you for your word. I thank you that it's power and thank you that you are greater than anything the enemy throws at us. In fact, he's a defeated foe. He's not the master of hell. Hell is the place he's condemned to. I thank you, Lord, that our enemy is not against flesh and blood. It's, it's ultimately against principalities and powers. Lord, I just pray this morning that we would recognize we are in a battle. Now, a war that's been won, but we're in a battle. And that battle is for the souls of men all around us. So God, I pray today that we would surrender to your word and the one who is the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray if there's anyone here that has yet to say, Lord Jesus, my faith is in you and you alone. I pray today would be the day of salvation. Again, Lord, use your word, change our lives and glorify your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray in his name only. Amen.